maybe one, two more sermons following. But this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. Beloved, this is the word of the living God. What, do I, what shall I compare this generation to? It is like, a, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to others and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Horson! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred entire in Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloths and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for, Sire, or for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and for you, Capernaum. Will not, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Amen. May God add his blessings to the reading and the preaching of his great and glorious word. Please be seated. Well, it's been a while since we looked at John the Baptist, and you'll recall that earlier uh, Jesus gave high praise to John the Baptist, ranking him uh, among the greatest of all the men that were ever born of a woman. He's certainly more than a prophet. Now, what made John so great was not his own personal identity. It wasn't the fact that he was a witty man or that he was winsome or eloquent or strong or powerful or anything like that. No, it, what made John great was the fact that he prepared the way for Messiah. Again, John was more than just a prophet. He was the subject of prophecy. He, according to Malachi chapter 3, would be the one who would serve as Messiah's messenger who would go before him. All the other prophets of the Old Testament looked for the Savior, but from afar. But John, with his own eyes, saw the Redeemer. And John had the privilege of pointing Jesus out and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, Jesus said, despite this privileged position, John is below even the weakest and the least significant person who comes into the kingdom of heaven. John only saw the beginning of what Jesus would do, and even then he didn't understand it. But we have been given a fuller knowledge of Jesus' work because we see the cross. We see the empty tomb. 
And we see how the gospel has gone out to all the world, even to the ends of the world, where here you and I are sitting, so far away from Jerusalem, so many years away from that time period as those who worship the true and living God. But as the gospel goes out, many turn away from it. And they turn away from it a lot of times because they don't know what they need. And so Jesus is pointing this out in our text. The Jews of that day, uh, they, they, they didn't want a Messiah who would be a, an ascetic like John. They didn't want someone rough and tumble like John, but they couldn't handle someone like Jesus either. That kind of confusion results when people put their desires, their ideas, and their own agendas before God. You know, Eve fell into sin when she listened to Satan say, God knows that in the day that you eat from the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open to know good and evil. You'll be like God. And she wanted to be like God. She wanted to have her own thoughts her own ideas of how to live life. She didn't want to submit herself to the commandments and to the ordinances of God. And so she listened to Satan and rebelled. But we're no different than Mother Eve. We still think ourselves smarter and better than God in our choices, even in our choice of a savior. And so we build a savior from, again, our own desires. And we build a savior according to our own agendas and our own concepts. Many, many are willing to reject the biblical revelation of Jesus in favor of their own ideas rather than bowing to him and accepting him as he truly is. And here again in our text, Jesus is pointing out the dangers of all that. Now, Again, Jesus responds to the rejection by asking them, well, what is this generation like? And Jesus doesn't flatter that generation. He said, oh, yes, this is such a wise generation. Oh, look at this. This is such a righteous and good generation. But instead, he says, they are like little children playing games. Now, of course, children... And every generation play games. Hide and seek, tag, kickball, and all these kinds. Of, most, most adults really don't pay much attention to little children and their games, do they? Now, we may have a picnic, and all the children have gathered together, and they're playing their games, while the adults are too busy with their own conversations, cooking, and really playing their own games to watch over the children. But Jesus, he loved the children. And he observed them playing. And he knew their nursery rhymes. And he used this particular one to illustrate the point that he's going to be making to these people. Now, again, just like uh, the children do today, the children of Jesus' day imitated the things they saw. How many boys and girls in our own time play house? I, I remember uh, years and years and years ago when we were in Las Vegas, uh, we used to, after morning worship, uh, we'd have all the people come over to our house and we'd have a, a barbecue or some kind of potluck every, every Sunday. 
And uh, it was one of those Sunday afternoon fellowship meals that uh, I looked outside in our back patio and, and all the kids of the church were playing church. And my second son, Cameron, pretended to be the pastor leading all the other kids in the worship service. And actually, he did a pretty good job. But, but children see their parents doing important things, right? And they make games of it. Well, here in this culture, the, the kids uh, were, were sometimes would play wedding games. Dancing around the little boy or girl pretending to be the bride and groom. At other times, they played funerals, singing sad songs and pretending to cry. Oh, oh, oh. But it often happens that during playtime, some children become bored with the whole thing and and they don't want to play weddings, and they don't want to play funerals anymore. In fact, they don't want to play anything anymore. Uh, and so the other kids would, would tease them. Well, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. Well, beloved, I, I'm sure you've seen this kind of behavior in other ways. You can understand the fickleness of, of children, right? Your children comes to you crying, oh, mommy, oh, so hungry. Do you want an apple? No. <laughs> you want a banana? No. You want a sandwich? No. You want some crackers? No. You want a cookie? No. What do you want then? I don't know. I'm just hungry. And what do you say to them? Well, stop being so fussy, right? If you don't choose something, you're going to get nothing. Well, again, Jesus likens the people's reaction or reaction and rejection of him and, and his kingdom by, by telling the, the people that they were like pouting and overly petulant children. And so Jesus here points out God in his great mercy, God in his great love for his people, first sends to them John the Baptist. Now, what did John do? Well, John came, and he came fasting. He lived in the wilderness. He wore itchy clothes. He ate weird things like locusts and honey. He preached repentance. He held to the asceticism of a Nazarite, living under the, uh, the, the strictness of the law to the very last detail. There's a precise man who had a precise vision of life, and, and you need to repent of your sins. And he wore the clothes and ate the, the food of repentance. And at first the people heard him, but they tired of him. And when they tired of him, they said he had a demon. They said that he was a madman, that he was crazy, that he was nuts. John's fasting, you know, it's too strict. His message is too severe. His life was too sad. He lived out in the desert for crying out loud. He's not the kind of man we want to follow. He would not play the wedding games. All he ever did was play the funeral dirge, crying about the judgment to come. And they didn't want to sing John's dirge. And so God graciously gave them another 
Jesus Christ. But Jesus was a 180-degree difference. Jesus didn't practice any of the severity of John. In fact, instead of eating hocus, uh, hocus, locusts and honey, he ate good food, dainty food. And unlike John's Nazarite vow, he drank wine. Moreover, this drinker of wine and eater of good food hung out with sinners. And he accepted party invitations from tax collectors and known publicans where even prostitutes were invited. Oh, what's the matter with this man? He practiced normal eating and drinking. He enjoyed the company of people. And so they thought that he was a drunkard. He was a glutton. They could be satisfied. Now listen, uh, to call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard was a very serious thing indeed. In fact, there's a passage in, in the Old Testament in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 through 21, where God told Israel that if anyone has a stubborn and rebellious son, they were were to take him before the elders, and they were to say, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. You see the connotation from the law? These people, as they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, were accusing him of being a rebellious child, one who was wicked, who breaks the law. Jesus is a lawbreaker. Really? The one who kept the law perfectly in all its details was called a lawbreaker. And, of course, the obvious implication of that is that he can't possibly be from God. So we don't have to follow him. We don't have to listen to him. We don't have to pay attention to him. Simply put, they were saying, well, John wasn't good enough for us. And Jesus isn't good enough for us. We don't want either one of them. John was too sad. He was too serious. Jesus is too happy. He's too joyful. God offered them the dirge. Of John's repentance. And they said, we're not that sinful to need that. So God offered them the joyful dance of Jesus' salvation. And we're too holy for such joy. You see, they just could not be satisfied. If anything, God gave Why? Because they weren't satisfied with God. They didn't want God in their life. The same people who villainized John for not playing wedding tunes suddenly changed their tune, and were scandalized by Jesus because he refused to play the funeral tune. Too sad, too happy. John or Jesus was neither good enough for them. And you can hear their defense. Well, you know, we are obedient to God's law. We're righteous in us, so we don't need to be baptized like those sinners who went out to John. We don't need to be like them. And we're way too holy to hang out with sinners and drink wine like Jesus does. Remember the the proverb, right? Bad company corrupts good character. Those foolish 
quarrelsome children would neither have the holiness and wrath of God, nor would they have the love and forgiveness of God. They thought they were good enough. They thought they were wise enough. All they wanted was a God that would close his eyes and pretend with their silly little foolish games that they were keeping the law and that was acceptable. They rejoiced in a supposed salvation that was earned by their own merits without God's grace. Why do we need grace when we have the law? Have you ever heard anyone say that? Now, of course, when people seek God according to their own agendas, according to their own ideas and desires, they will reject what God truly offers them because it simply will not fit in within all their preconceptions, will it? But Jesus comes and he shows them the contrast between himself and John. That God's kingdom is in fact, my friends, far better, far greater, far more glorious than any preconception you can have as what salvation is. And so again, Jesus pointed out the people's childlike fickleness, which in fact made them even more hard-hearted. And he finishes this little exhortation by saying, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Now, in that statement, Jesus touches on the nature of wisdom. What's the nature of wisdom? Well, the nature of wisdom is that wisdom works. It works well. In other words, if one supposed wisdom doesn't produce good results, then it really isn't wisdom after all, is it? But wisdom needs both knowledge and ability to be successful. If you have all the knowledge and yet you lack an ability to put that knowledge into action, it won't be successful. Or if you have the resources and all the ability, but you lack the knowledge and how to do the project, again, you're going to have failure. Well, these two messengers of God will be proven true by their respective fruits and deeds. John and Jesus each had a distinct mission to perform, and both of them carried out their duties in their mission well. So the wisdom of God was revealed when John the Baptist called the people to repentance. The wisdom of God was revealed when John warned them of a judgment that would come and destroy all the ungodly and all the unrighteous of the world. But likewise, the wisdom of God was shown when Jesus gave the hope of salvation to sinners and to those who sat in the gloom of darkness. Again, in both cases, God's infinite wisdom was shown to have been fully justified by what it accomplished in the hearts and in the lives of those who responded in faith. Well, the purpose of John, then, was, was actually to show the people that through their breaking of the law, they needed the Lord Jesus Christ in his grace. The purpose of John the Baptist was to show them the law in all its fullness and all its wrath. 
as it revealed our failures, as it revealed our, our inability. John's purpose in preaching the law was to show them that they needed the Savior that was coming. They needed the grace of God that would be revealed in Jesus Christ. But as the people looked at Jesus, they rejected him because they misinterpreted his deeds and they missed his identity. They didn't see John's purpose. They didn't hear what John had to say. And yet God would be proven true by his works. And though Jesus was condemned by the Pharisees to be a sinner, he was condemned by the people to be a glutton and a drunkard, Jesus will be shown to be the righteous Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. Now later on, much later on, Paul will write this in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where he says there that Jesus is both the power, and the wisdom of God. But that wisdom is revealed. The wisdom of God is revealed as Jesus is in fact condemned. As he's called a glutton and a drunkard, as he's called a rebellious child, an unrighteous man, They will send Jesus to the cross as an imposter. But they didn't recognize what Jesus was doing there. They didn't recognize the wisdom of God that this one who in himself is fully, perfectly righteous takes on the sins of his people and there he meets the righteousness of God and is condemned in their place. So Paul writes in that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Yet we speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. <laughs> no, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God which he predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. Indeed, my friends, the rulers of this age did not know God's secret is demonstrated in the crucifixion. <laughs> In the crucifixion, God redeemed mankind, putting our sins on Jesus. Jesus died in our place because they in themselves could not endure the wrath of God. But Jesus, being both God and man, could endure it. God's justice was satisfied completely in Jesus' death. And God's grace is manifested and completed by saving mankind through that death. Moreover, Remember on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead as one vindicated by his good works. Again, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. There was no deceit in his mouth. The grave, therefore, could not hold him down. So he rose from the grave in victory. 
and he has given the name which is above every other name as he sat down to the Father's right hand. You see, despite the people's fickleness, despite their rejection of him, he was justified by his works. And by his resurrection, he is proven to be the Son of God and God himself. He was raised from the dead. That designation that was originally intended to be a ridicule, he's a drunkard and a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and liars. That gives us now hope and comfort, doesn't it? Jesus so identified with sinners that he actually took our sins to the cross to be judged. And so now, here's the good news. Anybody, anybody at all who is a drunkard, a glutton, a tax collector, a prostitute, a liar, a thief, a fornicator, an adulterer, all of you can find grace and hope in the Savior. Praise God. Praise God that myriads and myriads of poor and and helpless sinners have taken this title to heart. He is a friend of sinners. And they came to him for mercy, and they found it in abundance. All those who are wise enough to take to heart the message of John and of Jesus will know the joy of the salvation. Again, John's message on repentance and his warning of judgment will come to pass. That judgment he prophesied about has been delayed somewhat, but he will still come. And those who do not repent will still face God's judgment on that last day. But but as John proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus came to the world to accomplish a wonderful salvation. Do you know it? Are you rejoicing in this salvation? Is it your daily hope that one day you will see Jesus, the friend of sinners? Well, Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees because they regarded him as a sinner, as a false prophet. But again, God's wisdom will be vindicated in the judgment of unbelievers. And so the next section here, Jesus tells us something about this. He he worked in Chorazin. He worked in Bethsaida. The wisdom of God still caused their condemnation to be worse than the judgment of Tyre and Sidon because of their unbelief. Now, you have to understand, friends, that Tyre and Sidon were considered by the Jews at that time to be archetypal enemies to Israel. Okay, uh, You could read about them in uh, Exodus, or, uh, uh, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. There, uh, the prophecy was that Sire, or, uh, Sidon and Tyre were wealthy cities. Very wealthy indeed, very powerful, but they were greedy. And, and in their wealth and in their greed, they became cruel oppressors. And in their great pride, they actually considered themselves to be like gods. And so God humbled them. And he humbled them decisively through an unbeliever, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great destroyed Tyre and Sidon so that not one brick was standing upon the other. 
But Jesus said that despite their wickedness, these Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes if they only saw Jesus' miracles. But these Jewish cities that had the law of God given to them, these Jewish cities that had God's grace handed to them day by day, these Jewish cities remained steadfast in their unbelief. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. And so the judgment of Chorazin and Bethsaida will be severe. And then Jesus also condemned Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, of course, was where Jesus made his, his, his fort, as it were. This is now his hometown. He made it his, his adopted town. And he concentrated a great deal of his ministry there. And he revealed his power wonderfully there. But the people of Capernaum would not repent of their wickedness. And so Jesus said, instead of being exalted, they will descend into the depths of Hades, suffering eternal punishment. Isn't it interesting how Jesus contrasted the city that saw his greatest works with Sodom, the city that regarded or the city that was notorious in its sin. Jesus said that if wicked Sodom had witnessed the deeds of Jesus Christ like Capernaum had, that wicked city with all its foulness would have escaped the punishment that came to them. Here, Jesus, again, is pointing out that, that though these cities of Galilee were especially privileged, their privilege will not protect them from the righteous wisdom of God when Jesus comes to judge them. A, a great light had shone in their midst, and yet these people loved the darkness rather than the light, and so they refused to accept Christ. And they're more blameworthy even than the very wicked people who had less revelation of God's mercy and of his plan of salvation. Beloved, failure to believe in Jesus, failure to repent, is a serious thing. It, it results in eternal punishment. And unbelief will result in a condemnation worse than Sodom's. That should fill you with fear. Jesus here is now proclaiming himself as the only exclusive way to salvation. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one goes to the Father but through him. But if Jesus had warned these cities of condemnation because of their unbelief, that warning is true for us, and even more so, because we have even more before us than what? Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had. They saw Jesus' miracles. They saw his deeds. They heard his preaching. But we have the, we have the apostolic word inscripturated for us, proclaimed to us. Jesus declared that our position is greater than John's. But beloved, with that position comes a responsibility to believe. Capernaum said, I have no need of Jesus. I'm good enough. 
I hope that's not you. Because they said, I don't need, I'm good enough. Capernaum will face a judgment more severe than what Sodom did. That's shocking news, isn't it? After all, Sodom was so immoral that God rained down fire and and brimstone upon that wicked city. Capernaum, from all accounts, wasn't as guilty of immorality like that. They were pretty moral people. They went to Sabbath. uh, They went to the synagogues. They they did their things. They, They did their ties. They did all the right things. And yet Jesus said they would suffer a greater condemnation because Capernaum had more knowledge than Sodom and didn't use that knowledge or repent. You might today be thinking that you're not as bad as others. You might be thinking that you're going to escape eschatological wrath of God. Again, the the Jews boasted in their own works and their own status. They looked down on others, didn't they? Anyone who seemed worse than them, they looked down on. And that caused them to turn away from the message of John and Jesus. But my friends, to be saved, to be justified, we must place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because only he can free you from the condemnation and the judgment that's coming. Again, as we wind down here, children play their games. Those games are usually fun and harmless. But the games adults have learned to play can be devastating, can't they? And people think they get away with the games they play. But you need to hear this. Jesus has your number. He knows what you are trying to do to escape God's demands. And if you won't turn to Jesus in repentance, you will find him in his righteous wrath. Jesus is is gentle. He's meek. He's patient. And he's gracious. But don't mistake his patience for a lack of care. Don't mistake his meekness for weakness. Don't mistake his gentleness for nativity. Some people are looking for some other savior than Jesus. And so they try to make Jesus dance to their tune. (laughs) And they had their excuses. They play their games for not believing in him. I've heard people criticize Christ. I've heard people criticize Christians for being too simple. Oh, you know, Christianity is too simple a religion. And then others say, oh, you know, it's too intellectual. Some say Christianity is too emotional. Others say it's not emotional enough. Some will say that the church is too judgmental. Others will say the church is too soft on sin. And so we walk away from it. It's all excuses. It's all gains. Just like those Pharisees who did not think that they were sinners. Some will be greatly offended by Jesus. They don't want him for a friend. And they think they can enter into heaven all by themselves. But here Jesus is given a warning. They're fools. The way of wisdom. This is God's wisdom, friends. If you want to know what God's wisdom is, here it is. God's wisdom is for us to see our sin, 
to see our failure, to see our inability, to see our ignorance, to see our foolishness, and to repent and to trust in the righteous, perfect Jesus Christ for salvation. Stop looking for somewhere else. Stop looking for something else. Jesus is all you need. And so if you come to him, come forth rejoicing what God has done for you in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we have in Christ a great Savior, a wonderful Savior, a rich Savior, a Savior who is able to meet all our needs, the one who is able to comfort us when we are disconsolate, the one who is able to give us joy when we are sad, the one who is able to lift the gloom, the one who, who alone can take away our guilt because he's undergone the penalty that we deserve for us. He is very God of very God, and yet he's very man of very man. He knows all our weaknesses. He knows all the sorrows. He knows all the things that touch us in this humanity, and yet he is without sin, and so he is able to come to us to be our rescuer, to be our high priest, to be our king, to be the prophet. He's able to be our savior, redeemer, our rock, our shepherd, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We ask, O oh Lord, that if we're playing games and, and you know that we would stop those, that we would stop pretending to be one thing while doing something else, and that, Lord, we would come to Jesus fully and humbly. Amen.